Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have a really timely conversation on loneliness and your social health. Marta Zaraska, who is a coveted science journalist and author, joins us today to help explore the profound effect our social relationships have on our health and longevity. You'll learn more about Marta in a moment, but it's her obsessional interest in health and longevity that has led her to a biggie in human health. That is social health, purpose and altruism, encapsulated beautifully in her latest book, Growing Young. It turns out, unsurprisingly, that our bodies have beautifully evolved to motivate strong connection and to establish ourselves within a wholesome tribe. Every emotion of loneliness, ostracism, connection, and trust is driven by hormones and biochemical processes as our bodies attempt to create maximum opportunity to survive, procreate, and to thrive. This conversation is so timely. Within the 20 plus weeks of lockdowns and social isolation, there has been a very obvious toll on the health of our minds, health of our relationships, and health of our physiology. Being socially fulfilled and connected is not optional. It's a human imperative. And what I found fascinating about this interview is that we explore the cause and effect of loneliness on our body as well as our body's loneliness biochemistry effect on our mind. From immune system defense, how we see the world, self-protection, and even our biological age, every emotion has a purpose, to motivate action that returns us back to health. And look, if you wanna know the hard stats on longevity and mortality risk benefits from a strong social life, then you'll hear it here. We'll also cover how to evaluate the strength of your social health as it is today, whilst giving you some ballpark metrics on numbers of friends, etc. This is not a nice to have, guys. Social media will not fill the void. The engagement just isn't real, at a human biological level, that is. Prioritizing your social health and purpose is a big deal, one which I'm becoming acutely aware of myself over the last few months. So start with this episode and then double click into Marta's fabulous book, Growing Young. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be in Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, which is an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts within episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I hope you enjoy my wholesome and fascinating conversation with Marta Zaraska, as we look to understand if loneliness is making us unhealthy and shortening our lives. Okay, we have the research-driven science journalist Marta Zaraska joining us on the mics today. 
who has written for many renowned publications, including Scientific American, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. Her work has inspired TV programs globally, and her articles and writing is consumed all over the world. Marta has also given a TEDx talk and has featured in various documentaries. It's clear that this woman has an obsessional relationship with longevity and thriving, and that comes through in the fact that she can engage and interpret complex science and that she has a way with words to turn complexity into relatable and practical insights. But here's the catch. She's just released a book on relationships. Why? (laughs) Well, we're about to find out. Welcome, Marta. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, it's, It's a true pleasure. Can't wait to get into this. And I must admit, Marta, I am really enjoying your growing young book, which is just released. Um, I'm about halfway through, and there have been some fascinating insights that I hope we can get into into our discussion today. But I must admit, the book is a bit of a hard read right now. Um, what with the embracement and dictate of social isolation and the lockdown, it, it further highlights for me the wrongness with how this whole situation is being managed, in my opinion. And um, it seems like as and in as little as just a few weeks, people's ancestral, ancestrally consistent worldview has completely been rewired, and it's pretty scary. And I know you talk a lot about ancestral um, evolutionary biology and understanding the human and you know where we came from. But maybe we can key things off even before your introduction and you know giving us a, a sense of your background a little bit more on this COVID slash social distancing situation? Because I'm seeing loneliness, lack of touch and cuddles, tested relationships at home, social anxiety, you know, a lack of diverse microbial kind of sharing. And it worries me a little bit. So let's kind of get your thoughts first of all. Like, How do you read the current situation as it relates to our longevity and the lens through kind of social interaction? So I think there are both negative sides and positive sides here. So definitely the negative one is the most visible. You know, we are told not to hug people. We are told to keep our distance. We are told not to visit and so on. This is certainly extremely unnatural to humans because we are social apes, just like chimps or orangutans. And uh, we need our our tribe, basically. Um, and this has both mental and physical consequences to the point, for example, that um, when people don't get enough hugs, there is actual research on that, they, uh, they are more prone to viruses which is kind of very ironic when you consider what we are trying to avoid here, a virus. Uh, so, and the same thing generally with feeling, uh, feelings of social isolation and loneliness, it also uh, spoils our antiviral response. It makes us uh, less responsive to vaccination as well, which with coming hopefully soon coronavirus vaccine is also another point um, that's kind of worrying. And in general, social isolation is bad for our longevity, for our diabetes risks, for our our cardiovascular health, the list goes on. Uh, So certainly there are very worrying things going on here. But on the other side, why I'm hopeful is that this situation can make us realize how important relationships are 
in our lives because you know it's not like we were doing great before coronavirus all across the planet i mean especially western world uh people were suffering from loneliness and for example in the uk nine million people were lonely before coronavirus uh that's a very big number and uh, in general there was we we're just too busy to to spend enough time with our close ones you know in country after country the statistics on how many people don't know their neighbors are usually scary in us that's 25% of people don't know a name of a single neighbor. Uh, you know, so we were not doing well. And I'm hoping that this whole situation now um, makes us realize how important those connections are. You know, in many places around the world, during the lockdown, people were discovering their neighbors for the very first time in the spirit of community because they were forced to stay in that community. Uh, so maybe there will be something positive coming out of all this. I like, I like your optimism and your framing. And I must admit, your book just feels so well-timed at the moment. As I say, a little bit of a hard read because when you are socially isolating right now and um, you're worried about other people being worried to spend time with you, um, there isn't an immediate path towards returning to a place or getting to a place of, you know, a strong social life. Not right at the moment in the UK. We are still quite draconian in our controls of how people can engage with each other. But your book is so pertinent to today, generally speaking. Um, but before we get into that, why don't we why don't we kick things off with you briefly plotting out your background? I've given a quick highlight reel, but how would you describe, you know, your vocation and how you got to, I guess, writing this first book, this, sorry, this second book? Um, it depends how you count. If you count my novels, that's kind of my like fourth or fifth book. But oh, okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> it's my second book in English. Uh, uh, I've been a journalist forever, as I, as I like to say. I started very, very early on, uh, still as a teenager, basically, uh, and I've been working as a journalist since then uh, all the time. Uh, I'm trained as a lawyer. I finished law school, which surprises a lot of people. And uh, also a lot of people assume that it has absolutely nothing to do with my current job of a science journalist. But I actually believe that uh, being a lawyer helped me, helps me tremendously in my current job because what lawyers do is that they always look for a hole in their argument. They always look for weak points. And this is also what science journalism is about. You have to look at the data. You have to look at the arguments, see if it makes sense, if you know it convinces you. And uh, you have to also see things from both sides. Uh, so I think that actually, weirdly, being a lawyer really helps me in science journalism uh, and also reading very badly written uh, things which lawyers do and also science journalists do a lot so um you know legal uh, legal documents and academic papers have oh, a lot painful. in common <laughs> very painful both of them uh, not all academic papers but quite a lot of them unfortunately so um yeah, so that's basically um, my background, but I've been a journalist for over 20 years now, and uh, and I've been freelancing now for well over 10 years for Scientific American, the Washington Post, um, Discover, New Scientists in the UK, and many other publications. Okay, great. And um, what I found quite interesting in reading this second book called Growing Young um, was the amount of research you did for this, not just reading journals and papers and books, but some of the physical research um, 
and experimentation that you did. Could you kind of walk us through some of the some of the things that you've done? Because I think it will kind of it will tease us into this, uh, the rest of the discussion. Yeah, so I've mentioned the painful part of the job, so reading the academic papers, and I've read over 600 of them for, for the book. Uh, but there was also a very, very fun part, uh, and that was discovering things like, for example, Tanganyika laughter epidemic, or investigating secrets of booze-loving rodents, uh, and also doing uh, lab visits and traveling and doing experiments of, on myself as well. Some of them uh, slightly unpleasant, some of them painful but still all of them very much fun um so yeah I, I had a good time basically doing all that traveling around the world doing doing this as well from what i could tell yes a little bit so you know sounds like a dream right now <laughs> but uh but uh, i definitely i've i mean i live in france so for me going to the uk was also traveling uh i i went to to uk to oxford when i was catching wild mice in the forest of Oxfordshire um, for experiments. And I also went to Japan. Uh, I have a whole chapter on Japan because as the longest living nation on the planet, we can learn quite a lot from them and not necessarily about the Okinawa diet, uh, very much different things. And um, yeah, so, and I, I went to a hugging salon in Poland as well, which is my home country, by the way, if anybody wonders about my accent. Um, so, so yeah, I had definitely a lot of interesting experiences. Let, I was going to ask you it later, but you've just mentioned it. So let's, let's talk about this hugging clinic. So set the scene, right? So I don't know if people are are aware, but there are there is a kind of growing industry, if you want to call it that, of professional huggers. And it's something that you can ingest, laugh at, and go, oh, that's ridiculous. But when you think about it, we do seem to be devoid of touch, uh, at least with strangers or people that we know less well, perhaps more touch between you know, our spouse or our kids. But beyond that, touch is becoming quite taboo, especially with the current situation. Talk to me about the setting and the why behind this clinic and, you know, what was the experience? Because you know, you're getting hugged by strangers. It just sounds really good. <laughs> I mean, there are places like this, you, you are right, mushrooming around the world, especially US, uh, Canada, UK as well. Uh, the one I went to was in Warsaw, Poland, and uh, it was called the Hugging Center. And uh, it felt very, very, very strange at first for me. I mean, I, I like, I'm very, I like hugging people, but you know, exactly making an appointment to hug someone <laughs> feels very, very weird. Um, so, but after the experience, you no, know, I can totally understand why it's needed. It's very sad that it's needed. That's you know, that there are people who have to make an appointment and pay to get hugged. Um, but I uh, also talked to my hugger and she told me that um, she has a lot of clients and they come because, for example, they are single, uh, they they feel lonely, they move to the city, they have no friends, their parents are cold and they never really hugged them and they, they need that experience. So, so there is a lot of people out there that actually do need this kind of services. And when you think about the fact that we, we go to psychotherapists and consider it completely normal because it is normal, then I don't see why we should consider hugging weird either because it's also a type of therapy just without maybe talking that much but just with touching so um or we also go for massages so it's somewhat cross between the massage spa and uh, and uh, and psychotherapy um and when i went there the place looked 
exactly like a therapist's office uh, with some candles burning and some some um, Buddhist um, figurines and stuff like that around. And uh, there was a couch and there was a very nice therapist lady um, I was supposed to dress in comfy clothes and uh, I got a card that had a list of different positions I could choose from from classics like spooning for example to something called the kitten and I don't even remember the other names so you could choose your position and um, yeah then we started hugging and it was very weird at first but um, I got relaxed into it and yeah I could definitely in I mean, see why people, I still prefer hugging my friends, but I can see why people may need that. Yeah, I, I was reading that chapter and I, I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> there was just discomfort in reading it, but at the same time, understanding how good it feels, you know, to, you know, fully embrace without, without the kind of just tap someone on the shoulder or just give them, you know, a brief little hug for a second. But that idea of truly connecting to, with someone through touch it's powerful. I think we all know that. I mean, even hugging your dog, you, you know what that feels like when you, you know, you're stroking someone or stroking a dog or just embracing your child. You know what that feels like. And to know you don't have that often and frequently, um, but not knowing that the absence of it is hurting you, whether it be from a longevity perspective or a general kind of mental wellness perspective. These kind of services, I think, make sense, but they are so taboo. Um, maybe we can pivot off that actually um you start the book off relatively early on Marta talking about emotions versus feelings you talk about something called the default brain network and maybe we can just kind of at the kind of evolutionary kind of start like what are emotions what are feelings and what's their role do they have a role or are we just like weirdly emotionally driven like the only species on the on the planet to be emotionally driven are feelings just available to humans kind of let's walk us through why feelings and emotions exist yeah so feelings and emotions you know there is nothing new agey about them or there is nothing you know we tend to think about them in a very kind of spiritual way uh, but the truth is then that they are also just biological signals that tell us about the state of our body basically you know it's uh it's it's message from your body telling you what's happening for example uh if you're experiencing experiencing fear that's maybe because there's a predator approaching if you're experiencing anger uh, that's maybe because you are in a situation when you're going to be soon punched by someone uh and when you are feeling experiencing disgust it's maybe because you encountered something that may be brimming with bacteria and parasites so this this is these are messages about the state of your environment and they also help us to learn because we know that um, when the message is emotional it gets better ingrained in our memory mm. on the other hand feelings um, because scientists tend to uh, distinguish those two things emotions and feelings feelings are more this kind of intellectual interpretation of emotions so you have the emotion of anger, of exactly disgust or fear, and the feelings are more how we talk about those things in our heads. And uh, this is where our cerebral cortex is involved. Uh, and um, 
certainly animals have emotions as well. There is no doubt, no doubt, doubt, doubt about it. Sorry, um, and uh, and we can see, you know, how emotions emerge uh, in the brain because when scientists um, zap brains with electricity, they can actually cause emotions. Uh, so we know that this is a very biological thing. It's you know, there is no like clouds of some kind of emotions floating inside our bodies or kind of spirits. It's it's very neurological, very biological. And the beauty with that, Marta, is that this is not just a manifestation of what you are currently think, thinking about. Because I know a lot of people say that thoughts lead to feelings, but quite often it's the other way around. Feelings and emotions or emotions lead to feelings and feelings lead to thoughts, right? Because we know that's true as well, right? I, I, I I kind of speculate it's probably that's the only way it works is that emotions drive our drive our ultimate thoughts but in this world where we we, we believe like mindfulness and kind of mental practices should be able to control how we feel your messaging counters that and says yes that's true but there's some biological processes chemical processes within that if we're not in control of our internal system emotions manifest and those emotions were there to protect us and direct us through life but perhaps now they're they're less valuable the the feedback's less valuable perhaps now where there's less danger maybe you can kind of like double click into that a little bit the um the 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 roles of emotions so how how do they manifest how do emotions manifest and Maybe give us a few examples, evolutionary consistent examples when an emotion was triggered for X reason. I mean, so definitely loneliness is this kind of signal to our body that something is not going well. And we've evolved it in the very similar in a very similar way that we've evolved hunger, for example. So you have hunger that tells you, hey, you should eat something because your body's lo- running low on energy. And uh, a very similar thing is happening when you're feeling loneliness, because loneliness is telling you that you don't have enough support network uh, and you should do something about it. And some and uh, it causes very biological changes in your body when you are experiencing loneliness. And actually, scientists uh, differentiate between loneliness and isolation, because isolation is objective. So isolation means you really don't have friends, whereas loneliness, you can have friends and still feel lonely. So it's very subjective. Uh, and uh, sometimes people feel lonely even though they are surrounded by other people, and sometimes uh, they may be socially isolated isolated and still don't feel lonely. And of course, the worst for you, for your both mental and physical health, is when you have both of those things at the same time. You are, you are lonely and socially isolated. And uh, and loneliness uh, evolved to help us basically on the savannah when we were kicked out of the tribe or got, or got lost somehow and uh, to try to reconnect and, uh, and find our tribe. And that was the purpose basically of this feeling. And, uh, and uh, so there is, it's also important to realize um, that it's natural. So there is no shame in feeling loneliness, just like there is no shame in feeling hunger. It's just about what you do about it. Yeah. I, I, I found that piece really interesting. This idea that every emotion has a purpose right and loneliness when i was around yeah that makes perfect sense like this sense this overwhelming hunger to 
be reunited or to bring support around you means that, hey, if as you say, if you're in the savannah and you're now by yourself and it's getting dark, well, you haven't got people to help find food. You haven't got people to help support shelter. You haven't got people to kind of protect you against the external threats. And therefore, that emotion is born from survival, like, re, you know, reconnect, find people, get back into a tribe, because together, we're safer, together, we're more prosperous. Um, that, I thought, was a fascinating insight. Just like hunger is driven by ghrelin, by the hormone ghrelin, um, this lonely, you know, what, what, what's driving loneliness from a kind of neuropeptide or a hormonal level? Is there a specific set of chemicals that are kind of causing this? I mean, so we know a little bit what's happening when you are lonely, but um, it's not exactly, you know, don't, you don't have like one hormone of loneliness that's what get, gets uh, secreted into your body when you are lonely. At least we haven't discovered that. Um, but we know that when we do feel lonely, certain things happen in our body. And this is about uh, our antiviral and our antibacterial response, which is, again, very important for what's happening right now with, uh, with the coronavirus. Uh, so when, you know, when you are with your tribe, then you are among other people. And as we've recently learned, when there is lots of people, viruses get spread. So when you're surrounded by others, uh, your antiviral response uh, is really high and functioning well. But when you get kicked out of the tribe, because for example, you had a fight with other tribe members and they ostracize you and tell you to go away, uh, then you're left alone on a savanna and the chances of getting infected by a virus are much, much, much lower. And on the other hand, the chances of getting something that will cause you a bacterial infections go really, really up because you can be attacked by predators, you can get wounded by falling, by some scratches and so on and so on. And because our bodies are imperfect and they often try to save energy as much as they can, uh, so uh, your antiviral response goes down when you're lonely and your antibacterial response goes up. On the savannah, it made perfect sense, as I mentioned before, because of this kind of away from people uh, close to predators thing. But these days, when our stresses are caused by something completely different, like, for example, mortgage payments or college applications, uh, then this doesn't make sense anymore. Because if you are under chronic stress of loneliness and your uh, bacterial uh, response go, goes up, it means your inflammation goes up. And if you have chronic inflammation, as probably most listeners have, have heard about it, you know, it's, it's, it's connected to most of the serious diseases that we are fighting right now, like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so on. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so the, the antiviral response drops. So if you're socially isolated, but come into contact with um, pathogens, not just viruses, because we know there are viruses everywhere, and and we are, you know, eight, tr you know, trillions and trillions of viruses in our own makeup. But we come into a pathogenic virus, there is a chance perhaps our defenses will be weaker, and at the same time our inflammation will be higher because of the kind of antibacterial response of saying, hey, if I get wounded, I need the ability to kind of like clear up that wound and clear up the bacteria quickly. So it's a it's kind of double whammy, negative effect when you're trying to improve your uh, immune health, generally speaking, in today's day and age. Is that a fair statement? 
I mean, uh, the trillions of pathogens in our bodies, I mean, not pathogens, trillions of microbes in our bodies, these are the bacteria, not necessarily viruses. Um, hopefully, it's uh, it's bacteria in our guts, and um, and most of them are, of course, friendly. Uh, so, but yes, in general, exactly, the, the, the idea is that inflammation protects us from bacteria and wounds and uh, and made sense when we're living still uh, hunter-gatherer life on the savanna and doesn't make sense when we are living in 21st century. Yeah, okay, okay, that makes sense. What about um, this, the, um, the psychiatry of being immunosuppressed? So you speak about what happens to ill people that are ill, they've got a cold or they're just generally out out of the game there's certain things that we do intuitively and we just think we're being whatever we're just being sorry for ourselves and down on ourselves but you actually describe there being some purpose behind the way we feel and the decisions we make when we're not feeling well could you get into that a little bit Yes, yeah, so there is this new area of research called immunopsychiatry, and basically it shows the connections between our psychology and our immune system. So, for example, very often when we are feeling sick, and again, something that's very hot topic recently, you know, because of the virus. So when you are feeling sick, like we are coming down with a virus, uh, you feel like you want to isolate yourself from others. You basically want to crawl into your bed and stay there alone, you know, in, and, and don't get out. And that, that's this kind of feeling of just general misery. And uh, people often assume that this is a result of the virus itself or a bacteria, whatever is attacking them. But the truth is that mostly this is caused by our own bodies. It's called the sickness behavior and it's actually caused by our pro-inflammatory cytokines. And uh, they are making us feel like that so, we, so that we do isolate and in order First of all, not to spread the pathogen anymore. And also because when we are sick, I mean, in the past, when we were sick, we were much more vulnerable uh, to others, for example, to some enemies or, or you know, just generally people who could take uh, advantage of us in the tribe. So it was a good idea to keep away when you were feeling sick. And, uh, and this is why our bodies cause us this feeling, but it's not necessarily the virus itself. Isn't that fascinating? Like the more we learn, the more we realize that the things that we just do intuitively, uh, usually without thinking, uh, and we might even um, question or, 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 you know, you know, damn, damn them and say, "Well, that's that's a silly idea." Or just, you know, get over it. But the reality is, our bodies are so well, well evolved and designed to be able to match. The, the you know our needs and match the environment i find that so fascinating i love anything to do with evolution because i don't think we've come this far and we've made loads of mistakes i think to be honest <laughs> you know the way our bodies work now is is absolutely by design and we unfortunately don't respect that enough we try and go against nature we go against our evolutionary biology to try and create technology to yeah overcome these either weaknesses or, or design benefits, but we're seeing them and perceiving them as weaknesses now. I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, maybe you can help us just double click into the loneliness thing just a little bit though, Marta. Um, so you've spoken about the immune system perhaps getting a bit of a knock. Um, can you talk about disease um, and, and the kind of connection to disease generally? And then also the effect on genes? Because I know you said there's a bit of a two-way connection between loneliness 
and our genes. I mean, so generally loneliness has lots of, and social isolation, both of them, they have lots of negative effects on our health. So, for example, in one California study, it has been found that uh, people who are socially isolated are between two and a half to three times more likely to die prematurely. So these effects are pretty enormous. And um, so people who are uh, who are lonely or socially isolated, um, they have, for example, also shorter telomeres. So those protective caps on the end of our chromosomes that have an important role in aging. Uh, and also, for example, loneliness is associated with, uh, with uh, expression of genes uh, that uh, promote cancer progression. So you can really see those effects so deep in your body as you know, on the level of gene expression, that's that's pretty fascinating to me. And um, so these are very, very um, biological uh, effects. And you know, and the f- interesting thing is it doesn't work only in humans either. Uh, even, for example, socially isolated parrots will have shorter telomeres as well, just like humans do. So, uh, so this is something that uh, that works in other animals as well. And you you've mentioned that some people are more genetically predisposed to the kind of perceived or subjective feeling of loneliness and that comes down to genes is that right Yes, that's true. So some people are more sensitive to ostracism. So ostracism is basically being kicked out of your tribe. Uh, and uh, it can mean something as simple as being put aside when you're, you know, your friends are playing a ball game and you are just, you just have to stand and watch and are you are not included or, uh, or any situation like that. But generally just feeling, feeling excluded um, with the most uh, dramatic uh, changes happening when people get thrown away out, from, for example, from their church. Uh, I, I've talked in, for my book to Je- Jehovah Witness, for example, who, who experienced such uh, ostracism and uh, it had some very painful effects on her both mentally and physically. And it's true that exactly some people have have genetic makeup that makes them more sensitive to this kind of um, social ostracism. And it all has to do with uh, with polymorphisms of uh, oxytocin receptor genes. And you can actually get yourself tested if you're very, very curious. There are some labs that probably that will will let you test your oxytocin receptor genes. You have to pay for it, of course. And uh, it can show you how uh, how susceptible you are to these kind of feelings of loneliness and uh, and being set aside by others. And do you think there's a evolutionary evolutionarily consistent role or a reason for why some people can handle more isolation than others? I mean, it probably you know it it makes sense because um, you know it's uh, hmm. I mean, it, it made probably sense that some people will be more likely to explore because, you know, when you when you are ex- an explorer, you have to be socially isolated to, to mm. feel fine about living, leaving your tribe. So it does make sense that some people would uh, would uh, be more inclined to stay close and some other people would feel fine uh, being away. So we needed both types. So that's probably why both genotype, type, both genotypes have evolved. Yeah, I've, I had a, a professional explorer on the show um, almost a year ago, and he has flown around the world by himself. He's cycled around the world by himself. He's rode around the world by himself, pretty much. Um, and you, 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 for me, 
I'm quite, not an introvert, but I enjoy my own time. I energize by myself. I find um, speaking with the people quite tiring, if I'm honest, but I'm social, but I just find it tiring. It isn't a place where I go for energy. For energy, I just need to kind of read a book or just be by myself with my own thoughts. But listening to James and he, he would spend months by himself with really nothing to look at or do other than the activity that he's committed to. And I just, I can't get it. I don't know, how do you do that? But in what you're saying, it makes sense that some people are designed genetically to be that explorer, be that nomad, be that Maasai individual that's going out hunting for days or weeks on end, looking for the, you know, the next, the next animal that they can bring back to the tribe. That kind of makes sense to me. But obviously not everyone's like that. Um, yeah, and you know, and there are definitely downsides. Yeah, there are also definitely downsides to having this kind of um, variant of this oxytocin receptor gene that makes you um, more easily a loner. Um, and of course, I'm not saying that whoever, whomever you interviewed had this variant, because obviously I have no idea. But people who do have it, and mo- most people don't. So this is only about 15% of the society, more or less, who has this variant that makes them less sensitive to ostracism or to social isolation. Uh, but the flip side of that is that they are less empathetic and they have problems reading emotions and they tend to be judged as less friendly by other people so uh, there are unfortunately some downsides to that yes yeah and i feel that if i'm honest marta i i i have the value of um independence um but the downside of my independence and my ability to get things done without the approval of others or needing lots of support of others to make make things happen you know people pride you know prize me for those skills at the same time i lack empathy at level which means that you know i will be compassionate to your needs but if uh, if you're not listening or uh, you're not willing to engage with the reality of your situation I struggle to empathize so I know that's a weakness of mine and I continue to try and work on that but it, it almost feels like I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm swimming against the tide a little bit because it just doesn't feel my nature to be empathetic to the point of sympathizing for a situation that's within the gift of that person's ability to change um, and I guess that's empathy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you know, the good news here is that empathy is a, mostly a skill. So in empathy itself, only about 10% is genetic and 90% of that uh, is um, is basically environmental. So acquired skill and how, you know, how your environment influences you. So, uh, so we can work on empathy and really um, a little bit like you can work on other muscles. So, you know, your abdominal muscles or something like that. You can also work on your empathy. And that's true that some people have it harder. And uh, even being male probably makes it harder. And uh, it probably has something to do with the, the testosterone when uh, you're still in the prenatal prenatal conditions. Um, so, but it's, you know, it is possible absolutely to to train your empathy as well and um, and work on it. Not all is lost. <laughs> no, not all is lost. <laughs> um, you mentioned autism in your book. Um, and I think maybe if we, if we talk about that, that can segue into some of these neuropeptides and their importance in our body. But um, what's going on with autism as it relates to um, social social skills, really, and maybe what's happening at a kind of biological level that can tie us back to these neuropeptides? 
I mean, so uh, so autism may be related to our oxytocin uh, genes as well. Uh, so this is an oxytocin is one of the social hormones that we have. You know, people often call it, call it the laugh hormone. It's a little bit of, of a simplification, but it is one of the most important hormones that do link our social behaviors with our physical health and our mental health. Uh, and uh, on the flip side, I also write about something that's sometimes called anti-autism, and this is uh, it's called. Williams syndrome and uh, which makes uh, people extremely friendly and outgoing uh, to a level that most people find weird and uh, they it's also uh, it's also linked to the to their oxytocin genes uh, and just like autism so there are the two sides of the same coin however you're wired for oxytocin you can on one side is autism, on the other side is anti-autism, the Williams syndromes and extreme friendliness. Right. So with in an autistic individual, they, they may be struggling through some genetic predisposition or production issue or a receptor issue in inadequate oxytocin, uh, I guess, um, action or... or I'm is, is that what you're suggesting? I mean, there's just a small part of, of cause of, of autism. Autism is related to so many different genes uh, and uh, we are just beginning to scratch the surface and, and the oxytocin receptor genes are just a small part of the story. So definitely not all that's to it. N far from it. It's just part of the story. Okay. Okay. So we're talking about oxytocin. So let's kind of double click into that. Can we kind of characterize what these... Um, neuropeptides are that you reference fairly frequently throughout the book. So oxytocin, serotonin, vasopressin, I think you talk briefly about dopamine as well, but what is their significance as it relates to social connection and, and us being a social species? Yeah, so, you know, we, so scientists often call those, so as you've mentioned, oxytocin, vasopressin, endorphins, dopamine, and serotonin, they, they call them so social neurohormones because they, they play a, re, a role both in how our relationships are working, how neighborly we are, and how happy our marriage is, for example, and also they link all of this with our physiology and uh, we basically evolved this way because we are social apes and uh, and in a, in a similar way uh, such hormones work uh, in other other apes as well so for example when chimpanzees are grooming each other uh, they, then they get the release of endorphins which are one of those social hormones and um, they on one hand they make them feel more included and closer to the other chimpanzees but also uh, the same hormone also has uh, pain killing properties so it's if you are in any pain it may it will make it uh, go away a little bit like if you took Tylenol for example so uh so 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 these hormones exactly link our social lives with our physiology so uh, but they have different roles per se both social and biological right they they do several things not just one thing right but oxytocin if we look at that in isolation um one what tends to amplify it and two what are its primary um, roles or outputs once it's elevated? 
I mean, so oxytocin you get it um, from being very people with, so hugs give you a boost of oxytocin, holding hands, basically any type of touch, looking people into their eyes, even looking into your dog's eyes. Also studies show that it can boost your oxytocin, also the dog's oxytocin as well. And uh, on the physiological side, oxytocin has been linked to uh, anti-inflammatory properties and also to um, uh, diminishing pain and to bone growth, which could potentially uh, prevent osteoporosis. Uh, so there are, again, very emotional effects and very physiological effects, purely biological ones. Mm. And, and I hear that oxytocin is ramped up to, you know, superhuman levels for for maternal mothers. So at, at the point of delivering a baby, um, my understanding is oxytocin is ramped up higher because it's, I guess, a evolu- evolutionary pressure to ensure that that mother wants to love and care for what is a a, a being that's going to not be no, not be able to look after itself for many many years. <laughs> so, um, and is are you familiar with that science that that happens generally at, at birth? I mean, so generally oxytocin, you know, it's it evolved over hundreds of millions uh, of years and in very different species, uh, first as uh, a hormone involved in reproduction. So it causes, uh, induces milk letdown in lactating mammals in general. And uh, also, for example, causes contractions of the human uterus during childbirth. And it's the same thing that also causes leeches, for example, to twist. Mm -hmm. And the thing about nature is that it often reuses things. So it kind of tries, it goes back again to the saving energy idea. So nature tries to cut corners, basically, and reuses things. So first, oxytocin, which was the hormone for exactly this milk letdown or childbirth, then it got also reused for for this higher higher functions, like exactly uh, social connection and romantic love and so on and so on. And it also functions in other other animal species like this as well. Even in fish, for example, oxytocin can make uh, male fish better fathers. Hmm. So its its evolutionary role predominantly is one of bringing the species together to procreate, to care for, uh, to look after one another. I mean, you can yeah, you could you could you you could say it like that. That's uh, that's one of the kind of hormones that help us connect with others. Okay, what about serotonin? So my understanding of serotonin it's it's more about certainty and significance is. What what is its you know what what elevates serotonin and what's its social role in humans? I mean, so it's it's you know hormones are quite complicated things, and we don't completely understand all their roles. So in popular media, you know, it's common to see exactly oxytocin called the laugh hormone, for example, and and these are very very severe simplifications generally because oxytocin can also can you can make you mean <laughs> so in certain cases so uh, so exactly it's complicated but serotonin also can function as a hormone that uh, that uh, keeps others close and functions also uh, exactly in 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 keeping uh, animals together. Okay, and serotonin, my understanding is also it's um, produced predominantly in the gut and um, works with the kind of uh, the promotion of of effectively flow through the gut, right? It's it's needed for good digestion and it's connected with the gut. So it's complicated, as you say, um, 
I wondered if there was just a way to characterize it separately from oxytocin or we're just not at that level of granularity to talk about that. I mean, so generally it's called, if we are talking about this names, it's called the feel good hormone. And, um, and there are very, um, there are effects on your social life from serotonin as well that are separate from oxytocin. So for example, studies show that your success in speed dating, for example, can depend on your serotonin genes. Uh, or for example, how friendly you are, or it's also connected to aggressive behaviors. Uh, and on the other hand, once again, you have this physiological side. So serotonin is linked to blood pressure, to pain perception, to Alzheimer disease, even to vomiting. So, so you have a very uh, effect on both sides, emotional life and social life and your pure biology and, and your health. Mm. Okay. So I know we've been making this very geeky so far and that's uh, by by design. Um, this, this podcast and me uh, are very curious in nature, but I obviously want to make sure that this is centered on both your main premise of the book, which is about extending longevity and increasing, you know, good social health. So let's tie this to longevity, because that really, from my understanding, is your pursuit, is your understanding how how important your social life is to disease prevention and longevity with the view to get to 100 plus. So can you maybe give us some numbers or give us a sense of how well it rates in comparison to other interventions, whether it be diet, whether it be sleep, whether it be uh, just mindfulness practices or exercise, like, is it is it a significant contributor or not so much? It's a huge contributor. So this was one of the things that really shocked me when I actually saw those numbers for myself. And there were uh, some big meta-analysis of studies done, which really helpfully put put all these numbers on one page. And, uh, and for example, uh, your romantic relationship, so a happy romantic relationship can lower your mortality rate by 45%. Uh, and to compare that, uh, diet and exercise, proper diet and exercise regime can lower your mortality rate by about 20 to 30%. So you have 45, 20 and 30. So it's a huge difference. And something that scientists call a complex um, complex uh, index of social integration. So altogether, your romantic relationship, your friendships, uh, how integrated you are in your local community, so how well you know your neighbors, for example, all this put together is about 60%. So again, versus 20 and 30% for diet and exercise. So it's actually even bigger uh, factor in your health and longevity than smoking 20 cigarettes a day, which for me is absolutely shocking. And I'm, of course, never saying that you should keep smoking as long as you have friends and neighbors, because, of course, the best thing is to do, you know, to stop smoking and be socially integrated. But just to compare, you know, these numbers are huge. They are. Um, and you quite often hear in this in the sphere of wellness, we talk we talk about so, your social standing as part of the you know the pillars of good health uh, and if you look at blue zones for example it seems to have been a strongly overlooked aspect of these high centenarian areas where actually if you take a look at their behaviors a lot of their behaviors are around community and connection outdoor connection um not holding grudges looking after one another eating at each other's houses, helping each other out. You know, these are important aspects that 
we've kind of just brushed aside because they they seem too subjective. Whereas we can be very um, dogmatic, we can be very specific about a regime when it comes to diet or exercise. I mean, what have you learned from your study of engaging with centenarians or, or older folk? Like, what are their kind of life lessons that they impart to you, and how high do they rate, knowingly or unknowingly, that kind of social fabric of their life? I mean, so you know, I've talked to a researcher, for example, who was um, who knew the best uh, the the person who lived the longest. So it was a French lady uh, named Jean Calmont, and she made it to 122. And uh, this researcher, uh, French researcher, he he studied her and interviewed her dozens of times over the years. And uh, he told me that uh, one aspect, uh, one thing about her was that she was an extremely cheerful person who didn't worry about things. She basically, you know, said that if, if there isn't, if I cannot do anything about this, I'm not going to worry. And she, she was very, very positive and always curious about life and just trying to experience new things and, and, uh, and very independent as well. You know, she lived on her own until 110. So that was quite incredible. And, um, at the same time, um, I traveled in Japan as well. And I've met with, uh, with uh, both octagonarians and and centenarians there and uh, a lot of people there were talking about something they called the ikigai uh, so this is a reason for living basically and um, it's extremely important concept in japan this ikigai to the point that the health minister of japan considers it as a health strategy for the nation and um, it translates very difficult into english but basically is the the reason for living, that's something that makes you get up in the morning, and in general, it has a very giving side to it. So it's not about you know you're golfing on your own. It's more about what you give to others. So people talk about their ikigai as their volunteer work or their job or caring for their children, for example, or grandchildren. Um, and uh, in Japan, it really plays a big role. And research also done in the West confirms that having this kind of purpose in life uh, really, really extends our lives and boosts our health. Okay. Okay. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, you when you take a look at people that are in their 80s, 90s, and even into 100 plus, at least the the, eye, the, the face or the, the embodiment that manifests for me is a cheerier disposition, is someone who still has their cognitive faculties together, someone who's still physically fit. And, I, and I've heard recently that really the, the biggest predictor to get into 100 is less about maintaining chronic disease and managing chronic disease for decades. It's about preventing the onset of chronic disease. So you typically find centenarians don't get ill uh, with chronic diseases at 40 and 50. They might only succumb to the degenerative conditions at 80 or 90, but they go so much longer without Mm. first succumbing to some form of chronic disease. And part of me thinks, you know, is is their mind, is their mental game, is their social game a part of that. I mean, it's definitely it's a very common misconception uh, that when even when I talk about my book, people often hear the title, you know, that, uh, that the friendship optimism kind of can help you live to 100 and they 
con they fixate on, on this 100 part and they tell me, but I don't want to live to 100. And, and the thing is that I explain it's a very common misconception that if we live long, it m means that we will be sick for a very long time, that, you know, you will start being infirm at 60 and just be miserable for four decades. It in general it doesn't work that way. Of course there are exceptions, but in most cases it doesn't work that way. So the longer you stay healthy, the longer you live. And uh, for example, people who live the average lifespan, so around live to be around 80 or so, um, they will spend about 18% of their time on Earth being infer infirm mm. or sick. And th but those who live to be 110 or more, they only spend about five percent of their time on Earth infirm and one out of every 10 super centenarians will actually escape disease until the very last three months of their life. So, you know, just think about it. You can live to be 110 and you are only sick for three months. That's absolutely incredible. So in general, taking good care of our health, uh, it doesn't just prolong your life and but you can be sick. No, you, it does both. It prolongs your life and keeps you healthy. That's a massive, massive point because I do think, at least the conditioning that I received, Marta, was that, you know, looking around me at people that were, you know, friends and family that were dying at, you know, between 16, 75, and you just go, well, that's the course of life, isn't it? You, as you get older, as you know, once you get past 40, things start to break down a little bit. Once you get to 50 or 60, things start to look pretty hairy. And then you're on this kind of slide, this decline of cognitive ability and physical ability and things start going wrong so of course you don't want to live to 100 if that's the if that's the <laughs> path you need to tread but prevention is 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 a worthy investment if you don't want to be infirmed for 15 or 20 years is okay well don't, don't it's not about living as you say not living to 100 it's it's living living well and living young until you're no longer here and to do that, you need to invest in your your health throughout, not just when you're 50, 60, or 70, and when you're not, you've got the onset of all these conditions. So I think that's a really, really beautiful point, Marta. A really beautiful point. Um, I must admit, out of all the book that, and granted, I haven't got all the way through, the loneliness, loneliness section was the most impactful to me. Um, maybe because of the time that we're in right now. Um, you mentioned a couple of things that I immediately hit me. So you mentioned this idea of um, warm showers <laughs> and hot, <laughs> yeah. hot drinks, and I'm like, you're so right. Can you can you talk about you know what, what's the deal with these uh, these warm showers and hot drinks and how we use them? Yes, so uh, so there is some absolutely fascinating research out there that uh, shows that uh, basically warming our skin, be it through a warm hot shower or by simply holding a hot cup of tea, uh, can influence our feelings uh, from this biological level by impacting, for example, the insula in our brain and uh, and causes our, us to feel more connected and less lonely. So, uh, for example, in research, when people are offered to hold something really warm in their hands, uh, they will report feeling less lonely. On the other hand, it also works the other way. For example, if you are in a cold room, you will feel more lonely than if you are in a in a warm room. Uh, so, uh, so in a very bizarre way, you know, you could try to self-treat your isolation or loneliness um, by exactly by 
trying to take a warm shower or holding a warm cup of tea. And, you know, when you think about our culture, uh, it's very natural, especially I think in the UK, when you have a friend coming over and saying that they are feeling down or sad about something to offer them a hot beverage, right? And, uh, and there are biological reasons for it to work exactly because it activates the systems for our skin, the insulin, the brain and sense makes us feel more included and less lonely. See, because you just think it's the it's the sweetness or it's the chocolate or whatever it is in 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 that product. But you're right, it is the warmth, isn't it? It's definitely the warmth. Because if you had the same beverage and it was cold, it wouldn't have had the same effect. And I know uh, when I'm tired, when I'm a bit miserable, when I'm a little bit, ugh, I go and have myself a shower, and I don't I don't want to get out. <laughs> you're just in there. You're like, I'm just staying here for a, I'm staying here for a long time, and um. I guess it's it's soothing, isn't it? It's it's soothing some of those negative feelings. I mean, it likely has evolved from uh, from animals huddling together to prevent uh, to for cold, basically. So you know, when you think about penguins, uh, when it gets very very cold in the in the Arctic, they um, uh, Antarctic. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I got confused. Uh, so uh, when penguins huddle together, they uh, they raise their body collective body temperature, and this way they can survive the winter. Otherwise, they would basically starve to death because they would need far more energy and they would burn mm. far more fat. So this kind of huddling, we, we've done the same thing in the past, you know, in mi- mi- middle ages, people used to sl- sleep together in bed, for example, to keep each other warm. And uh, and so we used exactly to connect this warmth, feeling of warmth with being with others, right? When you were warm, it means you were, you know, in the middle of the bed with all your family around you and you're kept warm and safe and uh, and losing less energy and protected from, from the elements. So we kind of still have this connection on the level of our brain between feeling warm and feeling surrounded by others. But I would say it's exacerbated when it's cold. So if you think about a cold winter in, in, in the UK, for example, people uh, reminisce or romanticize about getting under a warm cover, maybe in having a in a hot water bottle or sticking the fire on, campfires. It's it's warmth when there's coldness outside that is um comforting, right? But the opposite isn't true. When it's really hot, like over the minute at the minute it is 32 degrees in the UK, which is rare. <laughs> it is really warm. And so we just kind of bitch and moan about it instead. Um, but I, I'm I'm not feeling a sense of togetherness because I'm out outside in in the blistering heat. It's a sense of um, escapism almost when it's too cold and you've got that warmth. That I think it really amplifies that sense of comfort. Is am I onto something there evolutionarily? Do you think? I mean, definitely extreme hot uh, research shows that it causes more aggression. So, for example, when there is a heat wave, uh, it's much more likely that people start, you know, street fights and bar fights or whatever. Uh, so there is this kind of connection when it's already unpleasantly hot. Um, and um, But just kind of this pleasant warmth makes us feel more included. When it becomes uncomfortable, that's that's another story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably what the, what the difference is, actually. Um what about how we interpret the world when we're feeling lonely? So when we're feeling isolated from friends, we're feeling ostracized, we're feeling maybe so, social anxiety that may be building for, for several people, both kids and adults right now. 
um, because they haven't seen anyone for ages and they haven't kept in touch with people for a while. And this idea of kind of reigniting those friendships might come with some anxiety. How do people interpret stuff? How do they perceive the world? How do they perceive social relations when there's that kind of sense, that negative sense of loneliness? So definitely, you know, loneliness causes some very um, biological changes in the way you perceive the world. Uh, so when scientists, for example, do eye tracking studies, so they put some very uh, science, uh, science fiction looking like contra contraptions on people's heads to uh, basically measure where their eyesight is going, what they are looking at. Uh, they can see that those who are lonely are looking at different things. So, for example, when they are shown uh, happy pictures or very negative pictures, threatening pictures, uh, people who are lonely will pay more attention to those threatening pictures. Their attention really goes to the unpleasant, whereas, you know, people who are not so lonely, they'll pay more attention to the happy photos or, for example, of couples strolling on a beach, right? And uh, so and this is a very um, dangerous side effect of loneliness that it causes us to pay attention to threats, to this threatening especially social situations. And uh, because it acts against us uh, to reconnect, because if you feel that everybody's against you, uh, everybody's out there to get you, then it's harder to make friends, it's harder to reconnect. So we have to recognize that loneliness after a certain time, of course, it doesn't happen the very first, first moment when you feel slightly lonely, but if you let it um, become chronic, your loneliness, then the side effect kicks in and you may find it even harder. It's like a catch-22. So you have to recognize that um, that loneliness is doing it to you, that, this, you know, there, that there is this skewed perception of the world. So let me see if I understand that. So when you have kind of isolated yourself from a group, um, if we just think in ancestral terms, so you've isolated yourself from a tribe um, and you're staying isolated for whatever reason. Loneliness helps you see the world through the lens of threat because you don't have a tribe. That means that everyone in and around you, both animals and humans, could be a threat, could cause you more harm than good. And therefore, it's beneficial for you on the savannah to treat everyone with caution, to not embrace them because they could quite likely cause you more harm than good. And I could understand that. I mean, is that is that what you're trying to say? That that's the biological, evolutionary driven mechanism for us to experience the world the way we do when we're lonely? Yes, and it's, it's very evolutionary and it's very automatic as well, you know. So in studies, for example, lonely people can pick up on, on negative signals uh, within 120 milliseconds. So this is half the time it takes you to blink. So it's extremely automatic. Um, so, but it also, but as you've said yourself, it only turns on after a certain amount of time. So it's not enough to feel lonely for one day. Mm. You have to be chronically lonely. And certainly the situation we are right now when a lot of us are becoming chronically lonely just because we are forced to, uh, this could uh, this could this could certainly trigger these mechanisms and that will be very dangerous. The reason I'm double clicking in here, Marta, is that, I don't know if you spend a lot of time on social media. Um, I say I don't. But I do. <laughs> I say I don't like it, but I keep going back for more. Um, and I honestly feel that perhaps 
because I'm on it more, I'm seeing it more, but I also believe this isolation that we have. Now, you know, a lot of people are fortunate enough to have a family or living with a another person, but not everyone, right? Let's be clear. Lots of people are having to isolate in the, in the truest sense of the word at the moment. Um, but because of that, and I guess, you know, it's the the news media and there's there's a lot of worry generally about, you know, the consequences of this virus, et cetera. I know there's a lot playing on our minds right now, whether it be financial worries, et cetera. But this sense of isolation spawns some level of negative vibes. And that negative vibe seems to then escalate. I, I, I'm seeing that online. I'm seeing a lot of tribalism online at the moment. Um, you know, whether it be political, whether it be around pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown or, or nutritional or what have you, a hell of a lot of tribalism, a lot more anger, a lot more shaming of one another, a lot more distrusting of one another. And I guess perhaps it's born from this idea that we can't trust people now, we can't handshake people now because they could be a threat to us. Right? They, they could be giving us the pathogen in a literal sense and now maybe they're giving us this kind of virtual virus over the internet in terms of like you know, them infecting us with their their stuff. I don't know. It just seems that we are, we're dealing with a lot of negativity. And I, I think it would be prudent upon us to say that isn't just the fault of you or me or the person who's doing that, but they might, it, it could just be circumstantial that this environment that we've placed you in has manifested at a level of loneliness. It's creating a level of negativity that now is having you question or distrust or assume fight, assume a position of opposition with everyone else online. I mean, I'm generally, you know, I generally believe that social media is the worst thing that can happen to human discussion um, because you cannot talk with people, you know, on social media. It's uh, it's not a real conversation. So people just tend to shout at each other, you know, opposing views. And, and that's it, whether, you know, and get into conflicts that would never, ever happen in person. Yeah, we are not digital creatures, we are physical creatures, and we read emotions from faces, from voices, from uh, from smell even. You know, our actually sense of smell is pretty amazing. You know, people dismiss it, but it's it's really good. And, and we need this person face-to-face -face conversation and whatever is happening on social media is not real and really is uh, hindering uh, communication for us tremendously. Uh, you know, studies even show that if you, for example, text with your friends, uh, you don't get the oxytocin release the way you do from simply talking on the phone, you know, the, the traditional way, just picking a landline and calling, because just hearing the actual voice of the person makes a big difference oh, for does. your hormones, right? And text messaging doesn't do it. So it's, and then not just imagine, you know. Emojis the don't do to, it either, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And then, you know, we are talking about just the voice, hearing the voice, and now imagine you're actually personally, physically with the other person in the same room. It's a completely different story. Yeah, proximity is the key, isn't it? It's not It's not just um, hearing, but it's proximity all the way up to touch, uh, which uh, we've spoken about with the hugging piece. Um, okay, so let's now kind of, close on the more kind of practical side. So this is by no means a discussion of trying to label or make people feel uncomfortable about them having levels of anxiety as it relates to kind of loneliness or separation or or not having enough of a social circle. Um, this is really about acknowledging um, the human condition and acknowledging our biology and its purpose. And it is purposeful, albeit perhaps slightly missed. It's missing the point in today's world where our threats and our landscape is very different. But how do we evaluate 
whether we are appropriately social, right? Um, how do we know if we have enough friends, if we have enough contact, if we have enough of a social network? Um, maybe help you put some numbers to it or some color to this to help us understand what seems to be quote unquote normal, optimal, or maximal in terms of what you can expect from a social life? So certainly, you know, there's only one number that's really, really bad for you uh, in terms of your social life and the number of friends and the number is zero. So if you have absolutely no friends, that is, it's really, really bad for you from both your mental and physical health perspective. But uh after that, whether you have one really close friend or seven really close friends, that only really depends on your personality. So it depends how you feel about it. So for example, if you have one very good friend, but you really feel that all your needs are met, that you have someone you can rely on, that there is someone you can talk to, that there is someone who will always be there for you, and also someone for whom you can be there as well, whom you can help, you, you can be useful to, uh, then you are perfectly fine. On the other hand, if you have one friend like this, but you still feel that's not enough, then it means you need more. It's just personal feeling. Some people will need as many as five or seven really close friends. Others just need one. But you have to have this feeling of, you know, really having people who are out there for you. Um, then there is also the question of how often you meet with your friends. And here the research is more clear. So the minimum is basically about one time per week. If you meet with your friends less than that, whether it's just one close friend or your seven friends, doesn't matter. But then it's detrimental to your health. And that's quite frequent, isn't it? I mean, if we think about how people run their lives today, so they may be in an office space, they may be going to the office every day, but they may not consider any of those people. They may consider them acquaintances and some of them you know, decent friends, but not friends they can confide with, not friends that would actually help them in a time of need. Likewise, those people might be working from home, either some of the time or all of the time. And when that happens, that isolation is increased. Um, and then they may have friends that, you know, from school or that they've developed through their community. But everyone's busy. Everyone's busy running their own lives, having families, and you know, do, you know, doing hobbies, working hard. So meeting friends once a week for many people sounds like quite, quite a job uh, to you know to go <laughs> to go yeah. beyond what they currently have right now. So that's interesting. You say that frequently. I mean, that's an absolute minimum, right? So, and so, that's another thing about English language, what you said, you know, that the word friend in English is uh, very ambiguous. So sometimes people call about their friends, about people whom they barely met, right? And uh, in other languages, it's much more clear. For example, I'm a native Polish speaker and uh, our we have two words. And um, the one that is kind of for the close friends is a very specific word. And you really would never call someone who you don't know extremely well and who wouldn't you know, take you to the doctor in the middle of the night, this friend, right? right? So uh, so when, when I'm talking about meeting those friends, it's exactly this kind of extremely close personal friends. You know, your kind of friends from work don't count really. I mean, they're also good for you. It's good to generally have a big network of people, you know, neighbors and everything and be generally very connected, right? This is this is definitely vital as well. Um, but you also need this very close friends who will exactly, you know, if you if you feel sick in the middle of the night, they'll get up and, and come over to your house. This is, this is the type of people you need. I'm not sure how many people have those people, if I'm honest, right? I think the the expression of a true friend is someone that 
will help you when you're suffering, right? Whether, you know, people are abusing you or you've misstepped or, you know, you're getting a lot of heat. You know, you quite often hear it in famous, you know, in, in, in famous people, right? They know who their true friends are when the world is against them. Who's going to pick yeah. up the phone and say, are you all right? And I've got your back. And they realize just how few friends they actually have. They have all these people that want to be their friends, want to be close to them, want the benefit of them in their life. But as soon as that person starts getting stonewalled by by the world, they don't want anything to do with them. And I think honestly, um, you know, speaking for myself, speaking for people that I know, perhaps there isn't enough investment in identifying those individuals that really do have your back. Yeah, you know, like I, I don't have um, British statistics for that, but I, I have American ones and uh, as many as uh, a quarter of, or, of all Americans don't have even a single friend in whom they can confide. So that's that's extremely sad, you know, 25, so one in four doesn't have a single friend. So um, that's very, very scary. How many friends can you have, right? So again, yeah, I'm using this ambiguous term of like acquaintances, really. But okay, so you've got like your your best friend, you know, that person you've known for ages will do anything for you. You've got a bunch of friends that sit outside of that that will, you know, you either go to golf with or you meet fairly regularly, you go to the pub, but you wouldn't necessarily tell them the deepest, darkest secrets. And then you have your kind of wider list of acquaintances. Do we have any kind of upper limits? Like when people tout that on social media, they've got 2000 friends, like genuine quote unquote friends. Is that even realistic that you can have that, that level of engagement with that many people? I mean, uh, so yeah, so there are some numbers here and uh, the one most famous number is the so-called Dunbar number. And uh, Robin Dunbar is a researcher, uh, anthropologist at the University of Oxford. And I visited him um, during research for for my book. And um, and I've, I've asked him exactly the same questions you've been asking me, like exactly how many friends can you have? How many friends should you have? And so on and so on, because he he famously, um, you know, has been doing research on this for, for many, many years. And he has calculated that uh, people can support about 150 friends, but we are talking about this kind of kind of friends, so not the super intimate. So in terms of the super intimate, very close friends, you can have about five to seven. So those are the shoulders to cry on, basically. Uh, then you have a little bit wider circle, about 15, 50 people, uh, which are a little bit less close, but still close, and then up to 150 really of people in your network that you really know and uh, can connect with. And actually, interestingly, uh, the most common number of friends on Facebook also goes to about 150. So, uh, so this, this seems to be some kind of a number that we can still uh, keep in our minds and our mm. hearts. Yeah, that makes sense. I've heard that number before. And it, yeah, I can't imagine knowing more than 150 people well. That, that just seems like a tax that my, my brain couldn't accommodate. Okay. All right. Last question, because I know we have to wrap this up. Um, can't we just rely on our on our wife or our husband and our kids to do what our friends don't? Can we do away with friends and just have our immediate family in our house like we, we currently have with this kind of COVID situation? Is that enough? 
I mean, certainly you can. So, I mean, not the children. You should, you know, as a parent, you should never try to use your friends as your, your children as your friends. It's probably not a very good parenting, but um, but you can definitely rely on your siblings, on your spouse as being your friends. There is nothing against it. You can substitute, you know, friends for spouses, spouses for friends. Uh, and uh, research confirms that, that, for example, people who are only children, they make stronger connections with uh, with friends, for example, to, to substitute for the lack of siblings. So, uh, so certainly, you know, if your sister is your best friend ever, that's perfectly fine. It doesn't, you know, there is no rule that you cannot be uh, related um, to be best friends. But of course, not everybody is best friends with their siblings. And, um, and the more, you know, if you have a best friend and also siblings with whom you are extremely close, you know, all the better. I guess I guess there's um, a bit of a conditional part to it, isn't there? So if your if your wife is your best friend and your only friend, and or you don't care about connections beyond your family unit, um, it's somewhat conditional because one, it's, it's there's a selfish element to it, right? They serve me, I serve them. It's very reciprocal. We need to be in it together because we're part of one family unit. Whereas um, I guess having a having friends outside of your house is that there's there is reciprocity, but you have independent lives. So you're kind of, it's less selfish. And I, I guess that's where maybe some warmth comes from. And there's independence and they see the world slightly differently and they're having a different conversation and they're bringing new experiences to you. Uh, situations you probably wouldn't get if, um, yeah, the only person you confided with was your wife or your husband. I mean, it's very individual. I mean, there is no research showing that there is some kind of better or worse type of best friend. And uh, in general, you know, the happy romantic relationship is the topmost thing you can do for your health longevity. It's more important than friends, actually. So uh, so having a happy romantic relationship is number one. And then friends come after that. Um, both Okay, of course, having both is the best scenario here. Um, but there is no rule that, you know, you, you have to live in separate housing or anything like that. Actually, um, the research shows that when people do have, for example, roommates, um, so not in a family unit, but they, sh they have roommates, they do form very close relationships with them and uh, very lasting friendships. So, um, so you know, no matter how you find your friends, you know, as long as you have the feeling that you can rely on them and that you really trust each other, then this is all you need. Got it. Got it. Right. Let's uh, let's kind of pass the mic over to you for one last like final thoughts. Is there? How, how do you want to wrap a bow around this in terms of how people can think about uh, improving? their longevity, improving their health and well-being through a little bit more focus on the social aspect of their life. What would you say would be their top priorities right now to think about and reflect on? So definitely, as I've mentioned before, the most important thing is romantic relationships. So if you have one, then work on its quality, you know, and um, don't just put it on autopilot mm. just really work on the quality and in the book i also give some tips you know how you can have a better quality relationship so this is number one the number two is general generally being socially uh, involved so the friendships uh, knowing your neighbors for example and or being involved in your local community this is the second most important part and the third one is volunteering and charity so giving giving out to the world, you know, you can either uh, by exactly volunteering your time or donating money or just doing ran random acts of kindness and just generally giving out to others. Got it. And have you, 
have you had a change in in you and your life as a result of the research and writing of this book? I'm definitely trying. I'm trying my best, and uh, the times are challenging. But uh, but I do see, for example, how important it is, for example, to spend more time with my husband. And sometimes uh, I will give up on going for a run and instead decide that I it's much better if I just stay in, on the couch and uh, and talk to him. And uh, I see this also as a health behavior. I don't see it as you know compromise between my physical health and my mental happiness i see it actually as at least equivalent to the run i'm missing if not actually better oh that's beautiful and and i think i i and many others can concur that as you say one of the the silver linings of the situation of lockdowns right now is that for many not for all but for many we've found the the value and beauty and the simplicity of spending more time appreciating the people that we live with, whether it be our husband, wife, or our kids. And I'm hearing stories all over the world of people really enjoying that time with them, you know, without the speed and pace and distraction and stress of the world. And hopefully that that continues beyond lockdown. This has been truly amazing, lovely. It's been um, a gr- it's a great book, and I hope everyone does pick it up. It's called Growing Young. Um, do you just want to plug... Um, yeah, where they can find the book, where they can check out the other content that you've written in the past and where they can connect with you online. I mean, so I think the best way to uh, to check the book out is to go to my website. It's www.growingyoungthebook.com and you can find me on social media at mzaraska. Uh, I'm on Twitter mostly, so that's the best place to find me. Got it. You've been great. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep um, bringing us the science and the care and the compassion and the commitment to living a full life. Thank you so much, Marta. Thank you so much, Steve, for, for inviting me. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.